folks, and welcome to the second edition of the IDCA uh, Industry Luminary Podcast, uh, otherwise known as uh, To Infinity Paradigm and Beyond, this time with uh, Derek Collison. Derek, welcome to the show. Thanks, Mark. Great to be here. Yeah, I appreciate you taking the time. Um, I, I know that you're a busy guy between travel and uh, your your loves outside of work and the um, and the work that you do, which uh, you seem to always be finding something interesting to do. But before we uh, get into the the geek speak, uh, tell us a little bit about uh, what Derek's been doing for fun lately. Uh, well, I don't know about fun per se, but uh, I still love travel, obviously. Uh, was just in Rome for a conference on human longevity, which is a great topic that I love to explore and tinker with a little bit. Um, you know, living in San Francisco and L.A., starting to really enjoy the L.A. life and uh, decided to get a boat. So, I, oh, wow. I think, yeah, I have enough cars, so I got a, a boat and uh, I'm really enjoying it. Nice. Nice. All right. Well, uh, one of these times I'm going to have to talk to you more about the boat itself. Um, the human longevity thing is interesting. I've, um, I mean, I know you and I have had conference uh, or discussions in the past about um, about AI and the, you know, the influence on humans in the future and, you know, all the different impacts on, on potential human life and uh, a longevity conference sounds interesting. Was there anything in particular that you pulled out of it uh, that you found new? Well, I'll be honest with you. I really think the overarching theme, which might sound funny, is don't die stupid in the next 10 years. I think the advancements are coming so fast in terms of uh, genetic modification with CRISPR um, technologies around mRNA, which actually is the worker bees inside your body that actually are replicating the hard DNA. It usually isn't doing that. It's telling the mRNA how to do that. And, um, you know, we got access to some folks and companies that are just on the brink. I mean, in, in stage two clinical trials to solve all degenerative diseases, um, wow. to solve cancer, to uh, do some things that are really mind blowing. And I think most people feel will take 10 to 20 years to come. And I think they'll be here in two to five. Oh, that's that's really good news. I mean, we've all had those. um those friends and, and relations that have gone through difficulties with terrible diseases, cancer being one of them, and, and um, watching them struggle with that. Uh, the idea that um, we might actually now, uh, uh, in real terms, be close at hand to solving that at scale um, across the wide spectrum of um, cancer types, as an example, uh, is awesome. Uh, you know, and it, it, uh, it's a testament, certainly, to advancements in um, in tech research and, and uh, AI, among other things, I would imagine. Yeah, and I think, you know, you and I have known each other for, for some time. And, uh, you know, I think you know that I'm a, a, an eternal optimist. But even I, I think, was short-sighted in the time frames where some of these technologies will be ready to be used in humans and, like you said, affect people's lives in profound ways. Uh, I would imagine all of your listeners have known someone that has gone through um, something like this or, or lost a loved one. And so it was great to be, uh, be there and to see it firsthand. Um, and so I do a lot of that, you know, try to make sure I think outside the box or outside my day-to-day -day subject matter. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I think it's important. I mean, I, um, it's funny. I was just talking to a friend uh, uh, the, the other day when I was in San Francisco. We met for lunch and, um, and uh, talking about the value of um, hitting topics 
outside what would be considered the norm for um, a bunch of geeks to hit. You know, it's, it never hurts to have um, influence on your thinking from areas that you wouldn't normally consider uh, as you worry about uh, what to do with your technology next or the technologies around you. Good stuff. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Well, you've, um, you know, I mean, one of the reasons, uh, just being honest, one of the reasons we got you on is because you've, you know, you've got a really um, impressive career in the tech space. And you've, you're one of the people that could effectively say, have left a mark uh, on the industry that um, a, a wide portion of um, industry participants would know about. Um, you know, the, one of the most obvious is, of course, is, um, is starting a couple of companies, Epsara and now Synadia. Um, but before that, even um, some of the things you did at uh, Tibco and then Google and then the founding of Cloud Foundry. Is there anything during that period? I mean, what, what are some of the most important things from your perspective that happened to you during that period? And, and, and how do they relate to you know, what you're doing now or what you're seeing now? I mean, that's a great question. Uh, I, I think, you know, as as you get on later in life, you start to reflect a lot on. Uh, the things that influenced you. And sometimes, you know, you, you see things that you didn't necessarily see in the moment. Um, and so one of the very earliest things that, that ever happened to me was, um, you know, my grandmother, and I, I think it was like 1980, you know, got me a Commodore 64. And no one in my household knew what a computer was. No one had ever gone to college. Um, and my, my grandmother had the foresight to actually get this for me and, and kind of piqued my curiosity at playing with these things. Fast forward to getting out of college, I was, you know, in the applied physics lab of Johns Hopkins University. And probably one of the most profound things happened to me, which is I got selected by the second best physicist at the lab, not the first best. And the reason that it was such a profound um, uh, moment in, in my life and career was that the top physicist got all the supercomputer time. And oh. my physicist had 12 spark pizza boxes that they then looked at me and said, you figure out how to make those things do the same thing as a supercomputer. And at the time, I mean, it sounds very um, um, kind of general, you know, well, of course you could do that. But back in the day, yeah, yeah. Uh, 1990, it was always scale up, you know, vertical yep. scaling, not horizontal scaling. And so right. I was kind of uh, at a whim thrown into, um, you know, distributed computing when that wasn't a thing. And I wanted to do, you know, artificial intelligence, uh, visual representation, graphics types of things with my career. And I continually just kept running into distributed computing problems. Even when I moved to Silicon Valley in 91, the first job I had, I immediately was then confronted with the same problem. And so I'm a little slow sometimes. So it took me about three years to realize <laughs> that maybe this is, this is what I should be concentrating on. Um, but it was, it was uh, you know, a huge uh, opportunity for me that I probably didn't realize as much as I do now looking back. But getting early on into how you scale out uh, horizontally and utilize lots of computers to complete tasks – is obviously kind of at the forefront of, of infrastructure technologies and cloud infrastructure for sure. But in 1990, people were like, oh, I'm so sorry, you, you have to do that. We, we'll just keep going up with our supercomputers. Right, right. Wow. I mean, that's, that's huge. I mean, it's like, um, realistically, that's the, you know, that was the foundation for, um, uh, to some degree, you could argue that that was a foundation for 
the reason why I joined uh, your company, uh, Epsera, in 2016 was uh, ostensibly really helping people. I mean, to, to extrapolate from where you started in 1990, to extrapolate from there, it's, you know, more efficient use of, of, um, of distributed compute capacity, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm really simplifying a very, a very amazing tool that the team created, but still in the end, that's what we were doing, right? Yeah, I mean, exactly. And, and when I moved to Silicon Valley, um, I was trying to do uh, advanced um, large data analytics and visualization for um, a medical trial, right? Uh, an FDA medical trial in a health startup. And I was very excited about that. And again, like we were talking about, I got run into this distributed uh, computing problem um, and kind of said, okay, fine, someone's trying to tell me something. But since 1992, 93, my whole career has been spent on essentially horizontal computing, either how they communicate with time at TIBCO, um, what types of systems can be put together uh, that are extremely resilient, but based on a lot of, of lossy type systems, again, at TIBCO and then at Google. Um, VMware was Cloud Foundry, which is, hey, if we want to deploy these things into production, it's kind of hard to do right now with lots of moving pieces. How can we make this easier? And of course, all of those trends have continued and have gone well beyond anything I probably could have come up with or figured out. Uh, and that's a testament to the industry. But yeah, since 1992, I've been working on essentially the same technology area. Um, and that's quite a bit of time. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, I mean, that's awesome. It's funny because 1992 is when I first started in, um, in uh, uh, client server. Before that, I was working on a mainframe in an old data center. Um, and so that's, I kind of restarted my career in 1992, just coincidentally. Um, so, you know, ex extending from there, um, let's talk a little bit about uh, uh, your newest uh, uh, love and, and uh, startup, um, Synadia. Uh, Synadia came out, Synadia Communications came out of um, the Nats.io um, uh, project, which is now part of CNCF, right? So uh, what are you guys doing there? Yeah, exactly. And so um, for the listeners that, that might not be aware, um, Nats is a, a low-level messaging system that allows digital software and, and systems and, and services to communicate. Um, it's very different from the things I've designed in the 90s and, and 2000s. Um, it goes back to a very simplistic model of, um, you know, at most once delivery and, and protecting itself, kind of like a utility, right? So right. if you think of a utility like electricity, Obviously, the electric company's job is to keep your lights on, but one of its other jobs is to make sure that any one bad actor doesn't take down the utility for everyone else. Mm -hmm. And I was seeing a trend in, in enterprise messaging systems where they were trying to do so much for any individual client that a lot of times the system could become unavailable for the majority of the, the users. And so Nats was created actually as an underpinning for Cloud Foundry, which was a platform as a service effort that that I had designed and created at VMware, which is now extremely successful, um, a part of Pivotal, which just went right. public. Right. Um, and so Nats is actually new to some people, but it's been around for about seven years. Um, we built Cloud Foundry with it. We built AppSera's uh, platform technology with it. 
uh, again, as a underlying substrate to do command and control discovery, um, you know, location addressing, things like that. And so Senadio was uh, essentially a opportunity coming out of Apsera that um, I wanted to push the envelope a little bit on where I think Nats as a technology might be able to serve a, a larger population, a greater good. And uh, where that comes down to is, is that if you look at open source in general, there are some challenges around the way it's commercialized, uh, yeah. especially if you're not a very large company that has other sources of revenue. Um, and so startups trying to be in, you know, the information technology, you know, cloud infrastructure space are mostly forced into a, it has to be open source. And then you run into a consumer bias that it has to be free. Right. And that's a difficult place for the market to be in, but that's where we are. So I thought quite a bit about Nats and, and a technology um, offering that, that might be different, might be ambitious, but might capture uh, the attention of both myself and, and some of the early team members and hopefully a larger market. And that's essentially to connect everything. So every yeah. digital system service device, a single URL that will work in any cloud provider, any geo cloud or edge uh, is secure by default, right? So we don't have to wait like we did with the internet for the green lock to appear after 10 to 15 years. Yep. Um, promotes uh, sharing of data, um, but also gives you very strict and proper, um, you know, cryptographic abilities to do account isolation. Um, but again, just ubiquitous, single URL, dial tone just works, right? Um, and we think that there's an interesting angle to making this decentralized. So a global utility that's decentralized by design. So I think blockchain is getting a lot of um, news and press, but I think there's two different versions, right? There's the cryptocurrency, fiat, um, ICO type of conversations where I think there's some challenges there. Um, and I think you're going to see a lot of, of regulatory um, um, involvement from from state agencies and, and such uh, right. going forward. Right. But there's something I think very appealing uh, to the notion of decentralized architecture, meaning there is no one owner of a global utility. It's actually a decentralized managed um, system that has both a notion of command and control that's on a public blockchain, um, but also provides for a transparent reputation system to allow other people to, um, you know, put resources into this global utility. And the way it yeah. works on the back end is, is that it's a utility, meaning you have to pay for it, like electricity, water, you know, all that kind of stuff. But Synadia doesn't take all of that revenue. Um, that revenue is actually put out on the blockchain and immediately redistributed in three big buckets, right? 80% goes to the operators. And of course, that's divided up by how much traffic and how many people you're serving. 10% um, wow. will go to publishers who are sharing data that the network finds extremely useful, meaning there's a very large fan out. And 10% will go back into the OSS community. And uh, again, uh, you know, Mark and I have known each other for a while, um, and he knows I, I feel that OSS is, is both a great thing, but it's also presenting some very interesting challenges that I don't think the market and the community will really understand until a decade later. But I think they're challenges that um, as much as I can, as, as one person and one company, try to 
show a path that might be a little bit different way of thinking about OSS instead of charity or as a support, you know, contract tax uh, from big companies, um, you know. Uh, and so that 10%, you know, is kind of like a tax on all of the collected revenue from the consumers of the utility that always goes back right into the OSS community. And so if the global utility launches and no one uses it, obviously there's no money to be distributed. But as that gets larger and larger, um, I'm sure we will have made mistakes and, and have to auto-correct a little bit on our path, but I'm really interested to see if it can show a new way of actually showing that if OSS drives value, value should be driven back into the OSS in terms of incentivizing the innovation that that takes place. Yeah, couldn't agree more. I mean, I, I, um, I really feel like uh, you've made um, significant headway in the thought process because I know, I mean, I, uh, you know, had many of these conversations with you and I'm not nearly as smart about it as you are, but I, um, I saw the struggle you were making um, in, in trying to find the right balance between um, making something and praying that somebody will give you money for it, even though it's technically free uh, and making something that um, is holds really effectively integrated into the underpinnings of um, of the web or, or, you know, as you put it, the new electricity or the new phone service. Um, and I, I think that's a really interesting approach and, and, um, and uh, worth a significant amount of discussion all by itself. I mean, I was going to ask you a question about the uh, opportunity around edge and certainly much more distributed compute, uh, much more use of uh, functions as a service, uh, potentially even, you know, one of the conversations you and I had about, um, multi-tenancy with IOT and, and uh, you know, data segregation or data um, governance at the edge. And it seems like, um, you know, depending on the situation, there may be a lot of opportunity for a product like yours to help manage that. Well, yeah. And then, um, you know, I'm not sure if, if listeners are, are aware, but I've been very big on the potential for edge computing, you know, as a massive opportunity. Um, now, some of the lessons that I've tried to, glean from AppSera, which was trying to do kind of an all-in-one multi-cloud platform technology that was actually mostly proprietary. There were some open source components, obviously, but it was proprietary. Um, one is, is that, you know, throughout at least my career, which is coming up on 30 years, you know, we've, we've ebbed and flowed between different states, like client-server to centralized, client-server to distributed, uh, you know. One of the other ones that we've vacillated back and forth between, at least in my opinion, is IT professionals looking for more of an all-in-one, one company, one, you know, throat to choke, so to speak, versus no, just give me a whole bunch of different tools in my toolbox and I'll put something together myself. And I made a bet, um, which was wrong, that the market was swinging back to more of an all-in-one. And I think where I missed the boat uh, is, is that because there's so many new technologies being introduced at such a rapid fashion. I mean, think about it. We went from VMs, which were kind of really new and exciting, um, all of a sudden to this notion of platform as a service, infrastructure as a service, cloud. Um, then we went to, you know, uh, things like Kubernetes and then serverless and Docker. All of these things have come in a pretty rapid succession. And so I think IT professionals are mostly looking at trying to cultivate and prune out uh, certain technologies to put in their toolbox. And the three big areas that I think 
they look for are uh, when we're talking about cloud versus edge is how do I do compute at the edge? How do I do storage at the edge? And how do I do communication at the edge? And so Senadia is trying to solve that one specific problem, be that one hopefully great um, toolbox technology that says, hey, if you want to communicate between things very easily, very, very uh, performant and efficiently, but by, you know, secure by default no matter where you are in the world, we want what we're trying to do at, at Senadia to be that, that technology and that offering. Yeah, yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, that's um... – all right. So, uh, you know, lessons learned um, uh, uh, to some degree. And, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that uh, for both of our sakes, because I know that, um, uh, uh, you know, my forward looking um, thoughts on the future of IT aren't nearly as, as clear as yours are. Um, but uh, hoping that uh, our recent experiences uh, in um, struggling through the proprietary versus open source question will give us some um, uh, pause on how to approach the next phase. And it certainly sounds like it's giving you pause on how to approach Synadia. So good stuff. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, the, uh, one of the things that, uh, at least for myself, and I think a lot of people there, including you, um, is that we, we always operated with a really high sense of integrity. We, we built an amazing culture, um, within AppSera, which is something I'm, you know, the most proud of. Um, I, I figured out as I've gotten a little older that um, even if you, you make the right guess, meaning you know where things are going, um, timing is everything, and timing is the hardest thing to predict. Uh, and it's the number one risk factor for any startup. Uh, but even given the situation we're in, I think we developed some amazing technology, got some amazing customers. And I, I, I really do believe that we did the right thing, you know, in terms of allowing uh, Ericsson to grab the technology and really purposely, you know, slotted in for the, the telco vertical that they obviously um, are most interested in. And so um, yeah, I try to, you know, hold my head high and, and uh, you know, it's tough to, to say, hey, this isn't going the way we want. Um, but I, I think cloud infrastructure and platform infrastructure, those markets, um, you know, they're in a tough spot right now. It's really hard to make a business model that's something beyond support or professional services uh, training or education. And yep. uh, I'm not saying that those companies can't be useful. Uh, they can. Um, but I don't think you're going to see VCs keep investing lots of, of their capital, even though they, they have a lot of it in, in companies that at best can return maybe a 3x multiple, you know, on, on a, a fairly um, limited uh, based on working uh, human capital um, right. revenue stream. And so, uh, it'll be interesting to see. We've got so many things accelerating at such an amazing pace uh, from just base technology to, um, you know, a couple of trends that, that um, I started talking about a couple of years ago, uh, which at the time sounded really funny. But I said, you know, everyone keeps telling me everything's going to software, like software is eating the world and everything's going to cloud. And I said, uh, actually, I think we've already reversed and I think everything is going to go back out towards the edge and everything will either be, um, you know, generalized hardware, but more specifically specialized hardware, you know, at the edges and even inside of the cloud. And I think, you know, in those two years, you know, for the most part, you saw CPUs and maybe some GPUs um, in cloud. And now, of course, you've got CPU, GPU, FPGA, TPUs, which the new one, 
by the way, is eight times faster than the one they just released last year, uh, liquid cool. Um, and so the pace of innovation is going so fast. But if you're watching some of these trends, things are moving from software back into hardware or firmware. And I don't think you're going to see uh, a lot of things moving to the cloud. I think you're going to see a lot of the technologies that you interact with uh, on a daily basis as both an individual and a consumer and as a business are going to keep getting closer to you, right? So metro offices, center offices, base stations, um, you know, and then inside of buildings in terms of um, services and features that are delivered wirelessly but are, but are localized. So right, right. I think those trends going the way AI is, is still moving at such a rapid pace, um, there's going to be, um, you know, just some amazing opportunities that if people can – see the right combination, kind of the, the, the modern version of an Uber moment where, you know, it's like we got smartphones, we got maps, we got GPS. Hey, we can really disrupt, you know, an industry that uh, for the most part, taxis just didn't have a great satisfaction rating, so to speak. Right, <laughs> you know, right, nobody right. jumped out of a taxi and said, man, I love that. I can't wait yep. to get back into one of those. And I think the way technologies are going and the ability to access these technologies at scale for, for relatively speaking, almost no cost as what it was even 10 years ago are going to present some opportunities that um, are going to be mind blowing. And, and one last thing I'll throw in there is, is that I, I suspect that most of these mind blowing opportunities, these combination of technologies to be put together um, are going to be coming from outside Silicon Valley. To be honest with you, I think Silicon Valley uh, and I'm still part of that crowd, you know, at least 20 percent these days uh, going up and down the coast, um, you know, has a bias where we're, we're biased not to think um, out of the box. And I know a lot of people will kind of react to that and challenge me on that. And that's totally fair. But Silicon Valley has a very biased way of thinking about how technology should be started, funded, you know, matured, grow, all of the stuff. And I think you're going to see some of these developing um, countries or even, you know, different pockets with inside uh, already developed com uh, countries get access to these technologies and see patterns of, and combinations that, um, you know, people with that bias, even though, you know, you always want to say I'm not biased, everyone is, yeah. aren't going to see. So I think there's going to be some amazing uh, innovations in the next five to 10 years. I, I think mind-blowingly so compared to the last hundred, to be honest with you. No, and I and I fully support that. I mean, uh, even some of the things that I've written about recently um, on my blog and and uh, from you know discussions and and even the presentations that I gave at a recent conference in um, in New York, um, I would argue that that's true, and and that um, more and more people are beginning to accept that. I mean, you mentioned Uber and and uh, as it relates to taxis, and you know indirectly or or maybe directly, but um, just not directly enough for my little brain to catch entirely. It sounded like uh, you were effectively saying that uh, the the VC community, as we've all known and loved it or, or fought with it, depending on your perspective, is uh, to some degree ripe for that same kind of disruption. Well, I you know I have a lot of uh, great friends in the VC community, and I have the utmost respect for them and the VC community in terms of, you know, it probably being the single most important thing to why Silicon Valley exists. And of course, people are trying to recreate this throughout the world for sure. But I think most people looking at the VC industry, um, you know, who look at it at all have also recognized that they, they are about to be disrupted. And 
And most people would say they're already being disrupted by ICOs. Now, of course, regulatory things might slow that down. Um, but, you know, access to, to capital um, is probably at an all-time high. Um, and people are just looking for different ways to access that capital without having to give up um, so much in terms of either equity percentage of their company or, or whatever it be. And so I think VCs are smart enough to realize this and are, and are going to adapt. But, um, yeah, I think they'll, they'll be disrupted for sure. No, I, I think so, too. Uh, I mean, I, I, I don't see the opportunity for them going away as much as um, I do believe that there's some uh, opportunity for improvement in, in how the interaction occurs and, and how the influ influence is, is um, absorbed. But, um, you know, taking um, from those comments, you know, a lot of, a lot of comments and, and threads throughout this conversation, um, like, you know, the rapid change of tech, um, the, the increased impact on life, the increased impact on, on how we run our businesses, um, the potentially uh, huge dramatic move away from, uh, if not away from centralization, certainly in addition to centralization out to the edge um, and, and the potential complexity that that uh, um, uh, gives to the average um, enterprise IT organization. You know, thinking about that and thinking about what I'm working on um, with the International Data Center Authority uh, Technical Committee team, um, the infinity paradigm itself, or what we might call an application ecosystem um, uh, framework. You know, we, we shared a couple of notes on that um, uh, framework before the call. You know, what are your thoughts about something like that, something that gives um, the average owner of IT infrastructure uh, a better model for um, uh, viewing and operating and measuring either the effectiveness or the risk. Well, I think you know we spoke a little bit uh, about their this. IT I think systems as the you know the, the the IT world, the IT landscape, the enterprise ID departments, their complexity will never be simpler than it is today. Meaning tomorrow it's going to be more complex than it is today, and it's going to keep going. And you know the ability for people to right be able to understand the effectiveness, the RTI, um, the cost um, is something that there's whole markets that have been created around, um, you know, nuances around how do we actually kind of figure this out? And it's, it's going to keep becoming a more important part of the ecosystem, in my opinion. Um, even in terms of what do you pay in human capital just to monitor systems, um, you know, which Everyone says, well, you know, power and cooling for on-premise resources is probably, you know, a, a large operating expense that we could maybe trade and get better at if we go to the cloud. I would argue it's, it's you know, what's the human capital operating expense for, you know, running these things? And I'm not saying that the only answer is moving to the cloud. I'm saying that's one area where I think a lot of people um, struggle at properly articulating it or accounting for it in terms of a cost proposition. No, I would agree. And, and I mean, there's um, a lot of different ways that uh, I look at it. I mean, one of the reasons why I got interested in the idea in the first place when I uh, was approached by um, uh, Mehdi Paryavi uh, of IDCA uh, was just this basic notion of um, really giving the, um, the IT organization uh, something closer to an ownership strategy for their technology use, right? It's not about whether they can build bigger and better or whether they have a better data center or whether they have faster networks, uh, but rather 
you know, a better ownership strategy for their IT as a whole. And, and to some degree, you know, again, part of the theme that we've been talking about or some of the themes that we've been talking about through this entire conversation around the notion of um, it's not about how much you have in one place or whether you did it or somebody else did it, but rather how do you effectively own your capacity to deliver services that are generated from IT and whether that IT is servers in your data center, servers in a colo, servers in a data center uh, that belongs to a cloud company, whether it's managed on a PaaS or whether it's delivered via containers or whether it's a distributed app or a, or a legacy ERP app, um, there are uh, appropriate ownership protocols in order to uh, be able to deliver that service and those combinations of services to the enterprise that um, uh, many of us, uh, frankly, fail at. Uh, and uh, the tools we've used in the past, like CMDBs and, and charts on the wall, last about as long as it takes to um, save them and distribute them at which point they're out of date again. So um, it's, a, it's a lofty, lofty goal. I think, well, I do too. Us, and right? I think it, it, I think it parallels in, in a lot certain. of ways, um, at least at a high level, what the CNCF is trying to do. Maybe not exactly, but CNCF is trying to give a, you know, a cultivated list of technologies that, that could be effective in that, that IT toolbox that I was talking about. I think we're, from at least talking with you, and I could have this wrong, the IDCA uh, is going to look at, okay, now that you've curated a bunch of tools and you put them together in some sort of combination, we want to present an application ecosystem framework that can kind of give you feedback on how effective that is at solving the problem you want. That's right. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, I mean, at a, at a very high level, that's exactly right. And we want to be able to do that, uh, you know, from top to bottom. It's not just about uh, an application and it's not a dictate on how to design an application, but rather, you know, what to look for and, and how to build that application ecosystem yeah, uh, the right way for the company that uh, it's meant to serve. So, so, so good stuff. And, and you know, we, we are coming up on like 37 or 38 minutes. And I wanted to get um, a little bit more from, uh, you know, Derek Collison before we left. Uh, and what, what do you see, you know, uh, if you had to pick uh, something that you're most interested in, uh, you know, maybe other than, um, uh, you know, uh, increasing lifespan or, or even, um, you know, the, the um, next steps for, you know, probably, what would you, what would you uh, pick? at least in terms of, uh, professional or, or the technology landscape, it's AI. I mean, I, I studied AI in school. Of course we went into, I think the second AI winner right after I got out of school. And so, um, luckily, uh, as we talked earlier, I got the second best physicist, uh, <laughs> which put me on a different track, but the speed at which we're going, um, is mind boggling. Um, and so even to the listeners, if you, if you want to get a sense of it, um, you know, watch, you know, Google put a, a, a kind of a documentary movie together about AlphaGo. And what you see is, is a couple things going on there. You, you see one, you know, the first, uh, competition that they did where they won, but they lost like a game, I think, which is part of that documentary. They had never even disclosed that they trained these models in the cloud, but they were running them on TPUs, that they had designed a specialized hardware. But it took up a, you know, a whole room or so. Um, you know, it was very large. Um, and then they came back less than a year later, and right, they right. trounced the number one player in the world. Um, and it was the size of a mini fridge, apparently. Is I'm pretty close. I could be a little bit off, but it's, it was, you know, a two orders of magnitude smaller hardware footprint. Yeah. Yeah. It 
it did everything faster and it, it just obliterated this guy. Right. right. Um, then they came out with AlphaGo, which had, you know, no pre-training whatsoever about how Go is played. It goes back and whips the previous three generations of AlphaGo and it can run on two TPUs. And that, those were the slow ones, not the fast ones they just announced today. And so when you look at it, right, we're, we're looking at, you know, lots of data, lots of, of compute, even if it's specialized like FPGA, ASICs or, or TPUs even for training in the cloud to train these models. But these models are going to, you know, come all the way out to your right. phone, to something that you're wearing within probably two to three years. And they'll be able to execute these models instantaneously, zero latency, right for you in terms of speech translation, you know, um, dictation, uh, all kinds of things. And so for me, I'm watching that and I'm saying, okay, the basic building blocks of the way we believe the brain kind of works, some of that cutting edge theory isn't even close to what we're doing with deep learning. And so I think you're, what you're going to see is you're going to see a, a massive proliferation of hardware, specialized hardware devices and chips to execute these models continue. But I think in the next five years, you might see someone pop up and go, aha, I actually think I figured out the way individual neurons are communicating in a way that my model um, is going to, you know, two, twofold, two orders of magnitude better than the current, you know, uh, deep neural networks that we have now that everyone is watching just get better and better at specialized tasks. I think there's a bunch of companies now going all the way to the bottom going, okay, let's figure right, out this right. very, very low level simulated neuron, which is a very bad abstraction for the way the brain uh, supposedly actually works. Someone's going to figure this out, couple it with specialized hardware, and and, and we're going to have our eyes open to a, a, a world that I, I think people don't feel they'll see in their lifetime. And I, I really think we're going to see it, you know, within a decade, to be honest with you. I really do. Well, um, uh, one last question. Uh, uh, well, maybe two last questions. Um, one is, um, uh, what have you read recently? What, what, what's the last book or, or the, the best book that you've <laughs> so read recently? I buy that books you would suggest um, everybody pick uh, up? a lot. I, I have not read a book in probably four years. Um, but I have them. So if I ever do retire, I, I have a lot of books to read. Um, the last book that I actually am reading now is on how to train a puppy because I'm going to get a puppy soon. Uh, so that's kind of funny. But I do read lots of research papers, oh, nice. lots of, of blogs on technology. Um, I read probably two, four hours every single day on stuff like that. But I actually just have never read an actual book in quite a long time. But I buy them all the time. I have them stacked in bookshelves and, and all waiting for me to have some copious free time. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm sort of similar. I probably buy, I do read still, but I probably buy four times as many books as I actually get a chance to read. And that doesn't even account for the ones that people like my older yeah. brother or whatever actually send to me unrequested. Um, so yeah, I'm, I've definitely fallen behind. Uh, but for your, for your collection, uh, it's, it's actually beginning to change my thinking considerably on the future of work, et cetera. Uh, well, I think I don't know a at a book called the about it per age. se, but I mean, you, you talk about work and, and what I think people may not realize is that if you zoom way out, yeah. the concept that our identity is mostly coupled to what we do for work is actually a very recent thing, and it'll actually go away pretty quickly. <laughs> so there's going to be a very short period of time in, in human existence where um, yeah, yeah. The, the first question you ask someone you meet is what do you do for work? And I think that's going to go away. I think um, AI right. uh, will have a lot to do with that. I think AI will totally transform 
how people learn, not in terms of necessary formal education, but I do believe that same time frame uh, as what we do for work also applies to how important universities and colleges are for um, our population. I really think when we zoom out, it'll be, oh, for about 200 years, that was a really big deal. Then no right. one cared. Um, and, and the reason I feel that that's applicable, and again, people, yeah, listeners yeah. might disagree, is, you know, about 10% of, of the population is very motivated. Uh, if, if you give them the tools, they will learn. Um, and what's great about where we are in the landscape today is there's massive amounts of very high quality tools to learn whatever you want to learn, starting from obviously a Google search. But, you know, MIT has all of their curriculum, I believe, online, at least for comp sci and some of the math stuff. So I think AI is going to have a profound effect on, on education. And then, of course, the automation stuff. Uh, I invested in a company called Vicarious, which is trying to use AI in a novel way around robotics and automation, will allow people to start self-identifying with something besides work. Um, and I think there's challenges there for sure, you know, even all the way down to the notion of well, what about, you know, income? Do we have a basic income system? What does that look like? Uh, but I actually think it, it, it will probably be a good thing, but it'll yeah. be a hard transition. Yeah, yeah, no, I would agree. I would agree. A lot to a lot to see uh, over the next fifteen or twenty years for sure. Well, uh, before we wrap up, Derek, where can um, folks that might be interested in in keeping an eye on what you're doing, where can they find you? What's your your Twitter ID, or where where would they find anything you might write? Sure. So your um, company you know, uh, website Tossin or anything just, like that. Uh, All together is my Twitter handle, Derek at Nats N A T S dot I O is the best place to reach me. And Nats Idaho is a, a website around Nats as a technology, which is kind of the focus that we have right now. Um, as we try to bring online our global service, we'll probably surface some more details about the company and, and our mission in this larger ecosystem. But if anyone has questions, uh, I'm usually pretty good at Inbox Zero, at least uh, by the end of the day. So feel free to shoot me an email. Awesome. Well, Derek, I, I can't thank you enough for joining me today. This has been fabulous. It's been great. Uh, Mark, I always up. really enjoy and, uh, our, our talks. And, I look forward uh, to chatting I'm again. Glad soon. we could we could do it for everyone else to listen into. But we'll have to do a one on one here soon in San Francisco. Thank you.